As the United States inaugurates our 46th president, it's interesting to take a moment to look back at how our presidency began. Let's go to the bench. The latest in legal news and information from Collins and Lacey, a leading South Carolina defense firm for construction, workers' comp, hospitality, retail, trucking, professional liability, mediation, corporate, government, and business law. This is The Legal Bench. And welcome to The Legal Bench. I'm Michael Burney. I'm Director of Business Development here at Collins & Lacey. And we're happy to have as our guest today, Joel Collins, who's a graduate of the University of South Carolina in 1968. And he's co-founder of Collins & Lacey Law Firm, along with Stan Lacey in 1984. He's a senior adjunct professor at the University of South Carolina Honors College, teaching a course in the United States Constitution, a popular course with the student body. Joel is a wonderful expert to give us some brief insight into the formation of our American president. So welcome, Joel. We've inaugurated our new president. But do we really understand how the presidency came into being in this country? Well, I think we do. I think we can reconstruct uh, the events of the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and have a pretty good understanding about the different ideas that were batted around. On the first day of the convention, uh, when they finally had a a quorum, uh, the young governor of Virginia, Edmund Randolph, stood up and delivered an outline of of a government. It was called the Virginia Plan. It had been written by James Madison, but Madison was a small uh, man with a weak voice, and he knew a better presentation could be made by the tall and elegant governor of Virginia, the 35-year-old Randolph. So, in this Virginia Plan, uh, there was an outline of how the government would be organized, and this wasn't brand new. It had already been done in the state of, in the Commonwealth of uh, Massachusetts. Uh, John Adams had, had drawn a constitution for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It remains the oldest written constitution in the history of the world. And in his constitution, there were three branches of government. Madison took that same idea, that same approach, and proposed that there be a legislative branch, a bicameral legislative branch. In other words, a House of Representatives and a Senate. It was his idea to base base both houses on population, or at least how many senators you would have or how many representatives you would have. That did not turn out to work uh, for a number of reasons. It led to the so-called Great Compromise at the convention many weeks later uh, when it was decided that the New Jersey plan, which called for equal state representation, to be combined with the Virginia plan based on population so that in our lower house we had representatives selected on the basis of population, uh, including the famous three-fifths compromise, which gave the southern slaveholding states a huge advantage. And then the Senate where each state, regardless of its size, would have equal representation. Each uh, state would have two senators. 
So then discussions were held on what the uh, other two branches uh, would look like. We have the executive branch that was called for in, in both the Virginia and the New Jersey plans and a judiciary. So our Constitution sets up in Article One a legislative branch, in Article Two an executive branch, and in Article Three the judicial branch. The ideas floated around at the convention about a president ranged from, or more accurately, a, an executive branch. Uh, it was suggested by some some that we have a three-person executive committee to exercise that that branch. Uh, others said no, that would be um, that would be unwieldy and unworkable. Then there was discussion about should we have a, a limit on the term of the executive, who would be known as the president. Uh, it was suggested that he have a seven-year term. Um, the most uh, dramatic and unusual proposal having to do with the president was uh, the suggestion, a famous uh, speech made on June the 18th, Monday, June the 18th, 1787. And I'm looking at my book on the debates in the Federal Convention of 1787. Uh, these are the notes that were taken by James Madison. The man who stood to talk was Alexander Hamilton. Now, Alexander Hamilton had two other delegates from New York, uh, Mr. Lansing and Mr. Yates. They decided that this convention was essentially a conspiratorial effort to overthrow the Articles of Confederation, and they left and went home, leaving Hamilton as the only delegate from New York, and as the sole delegate, he could not cast a vote because the, 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 the convention was operated on the basis of each state having a single vote. So, uh, Alexander Hamilton stood up, uh, on June the 18th, the convention was meeting in what they called the Committee of the Whole. Uh, the Committee of the Whole looks just like the convention, except uh, nothing is brought to a vote during the convention uh, if you're operating in the Committee of the Whole. But Alexander stood, uh, Hamilton stood up and made one of the longest speeches by anyone at the entire convention. He was a very verbose kind of guy, uh, very well-read, very well-spoken, brilliant man. Uh, but his observation was that the only government in the world, quote, which unites public strength with individual security is the British Constitution. Now, there is no written British Constitution. They refer to there being a Constitution, but it's a collection of documents and practices and statutes that have been cobbled together in a fashion that makes everyone pretty well understanding uh, what, what it is their government will do and how it will operate, uh, including the famous Magna Carta. But he, he made this, this, uh, this observation. And I'm reading from my a book uh, by James Madison. Uh, to the proper adjustment of it, the British owe the excellence of their constitution. Their House of Lords is a most noble institution, having nothing to hope for by change and a sufficient interest by means of their property of being faithful to the national interest. They form a permanent barrier against every pernicious innovation. He went on to address the idea of a seven-year term, uh, 
and he came to this conclusion. The English model was the only good one on this subject. The hereditary interest of the king was so interwoven with that of the nation and his personal emolument so great that he was placed above the danger of being corrupted from abroad and at the same time was both sufficiently independent and sufficiently controlled to answer the purpose of the institution at home. So... He went on to say, let the executive also be for life. So his idea was to have a president who would essentially be a king. And uh, George Washington later, not, not on this occasion, but on a later occasion, said, I didn't wage war against George III to become George I. He made it clear that he did not believe in that sort of thing. And he very famously stepped down when the country would have easily given him anything he wanted. If he had said, I want to be crowned king, they would have done it, probably, uh, because they had such enormous respect for him. But he was a man of enormous restraint and good judgment, and he... um, he stepped down, and when he did, you know, John Adams was elected as our second president, and um, and George Washington um, uh, bade farewell and went back to his beloved Mount Vernon. So he set a great precedent of uh, of being a president of class, uh, restraint, excellent judgment. Uh, tolerance for the opinion of others. He was a very impatient man in some respects, but in the affairs of government, he tried to be uh, above reproach. And uh, anybody who really studies our history uh, will have a hard time uh, disputing my claim that he was the greatest president in the United States history. And uh, I can argue that uh, with anybody who wants to uh, pair him up against anybody else, like Abraham Lincoln and some and Franklin Roosevelt and, and some others. But I believe that the delegates to the Constitutional Convention, compromising as they did many times all through the convention, uh, they, they worked together extremely well. And to read about how they uh, collaborated and compromised uh, is to understand how government can work and has to work, because at this point, uh, the United States was very vulnerable. It had a non-functioning national governments, government. The states were rivals rather than partners. There were many inconsistencies. The Articles of Confederation simply didn't work. They gave no real power to the, federal, to the national government. Uh, the Articles formed what they called a, a firm league of friendship, and that was about it. No army, no navy, no means to raise revenue, not even a steady place to meet. They roamed around from city to city having their meetings. Um, and in one of the books I read, the writer said, vagabondage is not the hallmark of a great government. <laughs> and uh, so we have a uh, uh, an Article Two in the Constitution that lays out the authority and the powers of the executive. Uh, I believe, and a lot of historians believe, that as uh, years have gone by and the nation has uh, morphed into something different, 
the executive has way too much power. It was the purpose of the founders of our country to give the most important job of government to the Congress, to the elected representatives of the people. Well, Joel, I don't know if that was the Air Force One that just went over there a minute ago. That was loud, but uh, we heard you very well, and we want to thank you for giving us that insight. I also wanted to mention that you have a new book out, and it's titled, The First 50 Years Are the Toughest, A Lawyer Looks Back on His Life. Can you just really briefly tell us where this is available and what type of people would enjoy reading this? Well, I said in my little introduction that this is one of those books that once you put it down, you probably can't pick it back up. (laughs) Uh, I have not placed it anywhere for sale. I understand the little bookstore on uh, Main Street, the little gift shop, uh, might be interested. I haven't been down there to see them. I just took delivery of the books two days ago. And all I've done so far is give one to everybody here in the firm, uh, to all of my grandchildren, to some of my neighbors, and I'm going to start mailing them um, after Christmas. My wife said, don't try to do it before Christmas. Everybody's working too hard at the post office, and I said, you're right. So uh, the plan is to mail books to some of my very good friends across the country. These are people... Uh, who may be members of Primaris, you probably talked about that, or members of the American Board of Trial Advocates, an organization that I have uh, been in for many years and and uh, and have served as a leader in several capacities. Uh, I've got these wonderful friends. Some of, some of them have uh, said that they would be glad to pay for the book, but uh, I'm not uh, looking to be paid. I'm going to tell them, if you want to do something send in a contribution to the Aboda Foundation, or if you're associated with the university, send in a contribution to the Robert V. Phillips Memorial Military Scholarship. That's a scholarship that Rhonda and I founded at the uh, Palmetto College for those who are trying to get an education at Fort Jackson by going online to the online version. That's the Palmetto College. So if you'll give a donation to Palmetto College, I'll give you a book. Well, you've led a fascinating life, and you yourself are packed so full of knowledge about the history of our state. I can't wait for one to crack open the book and read it as well. And we want to thank you today for being on the legal bench and hope you'll stop by and be a regular contributor, especially to tell us um, information that we should be mindful of when it comes to the Constitution and what it means for us today. One little tidbit. Let me add this. Yes. The oath of office for the president is in the Constitution. And George Washington took that oath of office with his hand on a Bible. And he added to that oath the words, so help me God. That's not in the Constitution. The framers of the Constitution were very careful not to uh, establish a religious test for any office and to avoid uh, any complication of, of merging the state government or the United States government with the exercise of religious preferences. As you know, there are two, two of the six clauses of the First Amendment have to do with religion, the free exercise clause and the establishment clause. So George Washington 
took that oath and added the words, so help me God. And that has become uh, the uh, tradition of our presidential uh, oath takers. Another great piece of insight. And Joel, we appreciate you joining us today, and we invite our listeners to join us next time for the next episode of The Legal Bench. You've been listening to The Legal Bench from the South Carolina defense firm Collins & Lacey. Learn more at collinsandlacey.com.